Today's scripture passage can be found on page 47 in the Blue Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even those two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some of the water from the Nile and pour it on the ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the ground, on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to, for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take him in your hand, the staff, with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took, his sta took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At the lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It, it was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had seen him speak, and all of the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of all the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people. 
And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that they had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Well, I remember when Heidi and I first hiked White Oak Canyon Trail. If you've, uh, if you've never done that before, it's a 9.5 mile hike in the Blue Ridge Mountains and it's, it's really tough so that the path is rocky and steep and long and it was a hot day. Uh, but thankfully, we'd come prepared so we'd, we were wearing comfy clothes, we'd, we were wearing good hiking shoes, we had snacks, plenty of them, lots of water. And after hours of trekking along this path, we were finally nearing the end, tired, sore, sweaty. But heading in the opposite direction was a couple, and they were just starting off their hike. The guy was wearing slacks and some dress shoes. She was wearing a dress and high heels. They had no snacks, no water. They were totally ill-prepared for the task at hand. I'm pretty sure they're still on that hike today. (laughs) You know, there are times in life when we are totally ill-equipped for the path ahead of us. And unlike that oblivious couple, we know it. We sense our inadequacy. I wonder what those times are for you. You know, maybe it was when you took the first step out of the hospital carrying your newborn baby. Maybe it was the first time you attempted DIY house repair. Maybe it was the first day on the new job, the job that you had no idea how to do. Maybe it was when you sat down to take that dreaded exam. Maybe it was when you tried to help a friend who was suffering and they were in such a dark place that you had no idea how to respond. Maybe you just frequently feel this way. A sense of inadequacy hangs over your day-to-day as an elder, as a parent, as an employee, as a student. Well, Moses knew that feeling. Moses knew what it was like to feel totally ill-equipped for the task at hand. If you're just joining us for our sermon series in Exodus, let me quickly catch you up. God's people have been in slavery. For 400 years, they have been oppressed by what was really the world's superpower of their day, Egypt. However, God has a plan to redeem his people. He's promised to break their bonds and rescue them from captivity. And he's chosen to save them through a bloke named Moses. Now, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is preaching a a sermon to the people of, of his day. And just listen to how Stephen describes Moses in Acts chapter 7. He says this, When he, that's Moses, was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man, and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Now look at verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. 
just notice a couple of things about what Stephen says here. So do you remember a few weeks ago when Seth preached on Exodus chapter 2 and Moses rescued his oppressed brother? Well, Stephen says Moses understood himself to be bringing God's salvation. And that's interesting, isn't it? But you might remember the people didn't understand, so they rejected Moses. Notice also how Stephen refers to Moses as the Redeemer. God sent him as a Redeemer. So Moses has a really special role to play in God's rescue plan. In a very real sense, Moses is God's chosen Redeemer, the long-awaited Deliverer. In other words, Moses is central to God's rescue plan. But there's a problem, a problem that we see in Exodus chapter 4, and that problem is Moses. Moses is ill-equipped for the task at hand. You see, God has decided to send Moses to Pharaoh. He's then to lead God's people out of captivity. However, Moses is a reluctant redeemer. And Moses is a disobedient deliverer. A reluctant redeemer and a disobedient deliverer. And those are going to be our two points this morning. So if you take a note, first point, a reluctant redeemer. So in chapter 3, Moses was hesitant about God's plan. However, in chapter 4, Moses' hesitancy turns to reluctance. So in verse 1, Moses has an objection. He says, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. So Moses doubts the people's willingness to listen. And in one sense, we can't blame him, can we? So Moses has already tried the whole Redeemer thing. So in Exodus chapter 2, as we just mentioned, he, he tried to rescue his fellow Israelite from oppression, but the people just didn't understand that he was bringing God's salvation. So Moses was rejected. So Moses is like, look, Lord, I don't think you know these people. These are hard-hearted people. They're not going to listen to my voice. They're not going to believe me. They're not going to believe that you, the God of the universe, the great I am, has appeared to me. Do you see how self-absorbed Moses is? So in chapter 3, Moses was like, who am I? And God was like, no, 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 no. Who am I? Well, Moses still hasn't learned that lesson yet. So God responds to Moses' objection in verses two to nine. He, he gives Moses three signs to perform in the sight of the people of Israel. In verse two, he says, hey, Moses, what's, what's that in your hand? And Moses is like, it's a staff. If you remember, Moses is a shepherd, so having a staff was just part of the job. And then in verse 3, God says, throw that staff on the ground. So Moses throws the staff on the ground, and it turns into a serpent. And Moses obviously wasn't expecting this, because look at the end of verse 4. This is hilarious, really. Moses ran away. Last year, I was, I was walking uh, barefoot in our backyard, and it was, it was one of those warm summer nights, so I'm just picking up toys and moving chairs and putting stuff away. And then... At one point, I don't even know what made me do it, I looked down, and right next to my right foot was this giant black snake. 
And I did that, that tongue thing at me, you know. And I, I'm not kidding, I did this high-pitched five-year-old girl scream, and I ran for my life. It wasn't my proudest moment, but I, I have a lot of sympathy for Moses here. But then God calls Moses back and he says, okay, Moses, do you know that snake you just ran away from? Go pick her up. God's kind of funny, really. Uh, but fair play to Moses, he, he plucks up the courage, he grabs the snake and it turns back into a staff. Now, what's the point of all this? Well, look at verse five. God says that, you may believe, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. This is a sign for the people that they may believe that, that God, the same God that made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that same God has in fact appeared to Moses. But Moses is given a, a second sign in verse six. God tells him to, to put his hand inside his cloak. And so Moses puts his hand inside this cloak. But when he pulls it out, his hand was leprous like snow. But this time before Moses can freak out, God commands him to do the same thing again. So he puts his hand inside his cloak, he pulls it out, and it's been healed. In verse eight, we learn the purpose of this sign. God says, if they will not believe you, God said, oh, listen to the first sign. Then they may believe the latter sign. Again, notice that word believe there. God's after the faith of his people. Finally, God gives Moses a third sign in verse, eight, verse nine. This is like a backup sign, kind of like a break glass in case of emergency sign. So if the people don't believe, if, if, if they don't listen to Moses' voice, even after the first two signs, Moses is to go and take some water from the river Nile and he's, gonna, he's supposed to pour it on the dry ground. And when he does that, God says, the water's gonna turn to blood. Now, we don't know why God chose these particular signs. So uh, we know that snakes were feared and often even worshipped in Egypt. Leprosy was very common in Egypt and was thought to be largely incurable. And the river Nile was really at the heart of Egypt's existence, so it was the source of their health and wealth and power. So maybe God's showing his authority over Egypt with these signs. Either way, we'd expect Moses at this point to be like, all right, giddy up, let's, let's go and do this thing. But these signs don't appear to have made Moses any less reluctant. So in verse 10, he gives his second objection. He says, oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in, in the past or since you've spoken to your servants, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. So in verse one, Moses' concern was they might not listen well, and in verse 10, his concern is, I might not speak well. He doesn't think that he's eloquent enough. His speech is too slow. Now, we're not exactly sure what, what Moses' issue was here. So maybe, maybe he has a speech impediment. That's probably the most common, uh, common view on this. Uh, maybe, maybe his Egyptian was a bit rusty. Maybe his Hebrew wasn't up to scratch. Maybe he's just not good at public speaking. Either way, he feels insufficient for the task. But here's the thing. Moses hasn't been chosen because of his competence. In fact, the opposite is true. Moses is so incompetent 
God decides that's the guy I'm going to use. Because God uses the weak and foolish things of the world to shame the strong and the wise. God uses incompetent people to display his competence. He uses weak people to showcase his power. Now stop and think about this a second. Moses is concerned about speaking to Pharaoh and the people of Israel. But who's Moses speaking to right now? The great I am, the creator of the universe, the self-existent, self-sufficient, infinitely holy God. Everything else is a step down from this. So God responds in verse 11. He says, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? (laughs) Isn't this great? Moses, do you realize who you're speaking to? I made your mouth. Do you not think I can overcome your weakness? Do you not think I can enable you to do the very thing I'm calling you to do? God reminds Moses that he's sovereign over people's speech. Not only that, but he's sovereign over people's ability to listen and and perceive. Moses, do you not think I can open the, the ears of this stubborn people? Do you not believe that, do you not know that I can give them spiritual sight? And look what God promises in verse 12. Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Later on in the Bible, in in Acts 7, so Stephen is preaching the sermon, the sermon I referenced earlier. And listen to what he says in verse 22. Stephen says, Moses was mighty in his words. That's what Stephen says. Looking back on Moses' life, he says, Moses was mighty in his words. God was faithful to his promise. Just imagine your greatest weakness, something that you're not very good at, something that you wish you could change about yourself. Maybe it's a fearful temperament or a tendency to overthink things or a propensity to be overwhelmed. Whatever weakness or weaknesses come to mind, Now imagine you became known as someone who is mighty in that area of weakness. Well, that's what God did with Moses. And that's what God can do with anyone. Now you'd think God's response would be a slam dunk, you know? I don't know if anybody watches the NBA. Did you see John Morant's slam dunk this week? Look at me using an NBA illustration. This is never going to happen again. Anyway, it was ridiculous. You should look it up on YouTube after the sermon and see it. It was amazing. Well, that's the kind of slam dunk God gives Moses here. So you think that would settle everything, but no, Moses still isn't convinced. And he objects a third time in verse 13. And this time he just says, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Moses has gone from Here I am in chapter three to send someone else in chapter four. There's no argument here, just a desperate plea. In verse 14, we read that the anger of God, of the Lord was kindled against Moses. In chapter three, God revealed himself as a God who is slow to anger, but Moses has tested his patience. 
Even so, God is still gracious. He accommodates Moses. He agrees to send Moses' brother Aaron along with him. Unlike Moses, Aaron can speak well, God says. Therefore, he's going to be Moses' mouthpiece. He's going to function almost like Moses' prophet in verse 16. Even so, God is the one who's going to speak through Moses and Aaron. So Moses is not completely off the hook. Moses is still going to speak. And we'll see that throughout Exodus and even the rest of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Moses and Aaron are both going to be speaking to the people. In verse 17, God tells Moses to take his staff. With this staff, Moses is going to perform the signs. This staff, we're going to see this in Exodus, plays a really important role in this book. This is going to be the staff whereby Moses brings about God's salvation, often through judgment. So despite Moses' reluctance, God does not take no for an answer. Now, it's really easy for us to look down on Moses here, isn't it? After all, his continual reluctance is almost comical. However, as as I thought about Moses this week, I couldn't help but wonder, are you and I any different? I mean, can't you see yourself in Moses here? Now, don't get me wrong, Moses had a unique role to play in redemptive history. So you and I haven't been sent to redeem Israel from captivity to Egypt. However, if you're a Christian this morning, then God has called you to go and and tell people about his rescue plan. Because here's the thing, God has sent a redeemer. But unlike Moses, this redeemer did not come reluctantly. He willingly came down from heaven. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. This redeemer offers redemption, not from slavery to Egypt, but from slavery to sin and death. This redeemer, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's through his death and resurrection that he saved his people from their sins. This is the good news that God has given each one of us to go and proclaim. And people desperately need to hear this message. There are people who are living under greater bondage than Pharaoh. And they need to hear this message. But I don't know about you, I've often been reluctant to share it. When opportunities arise, I've often been hesitant to speak. Instead of telling people about God's redemption, in my heart I've often said, oh Lord, please send someone else. And I suspect I'm not the only one. So think of those times when you've been in conversations with people at the sports field, in the classroom, at the office, at the dinner table on your commute. You've thought about inviting them to church. Maybe recently you've thought about inviting them to Hope Explored. Shameless plug. You've thought, about, you've thought about telling them about Jesus, but then just a whole host of, of Moses-like excuses just flood into your head. But they're not going to listen. They won't believe the gospel. They're, they're way too hard-hearted. Besides, I don't, I don't even know what I'm going to say. I, I'm, I'm not very good at thinking on my feet. I won't be able to answer their objections. I'm, I'm not skilled in sharing the gospel. I'm, I'm not eloquent enough. Surely God will send someone else. I wonder if you've made those excuses. I know I have. 
But let this passage both convict and encourage you because God is able to use weak and reluctant people, people like Moses, people like you and me, and make us mighty in words, his words, because the message of the gospel is not our message, it's God's message, and it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. After all, aren't you glad someone shared God's rescue plan with you? Aren't you glad that somebody plucked up the courage to tell you about God's redemption? So Moses was a reluctant redeemer. However, that wasn't his only problem. And this brings us to our second point this morning, a disobedient deliverer, a disobedient deliverer. Okay, so Moses, he eventually, but probably still a bit reluctantly, does what God says. And in verses 18 to 20, he, gets, he goes and gets his family from Midian, where he was living. If you remember, Moses was, he was a wanted man in Egypt. Someone had basically put a hit on his life, and so he'd fled Egypt. Uh, but in verse 19, God reassures Moses that all of his enemies have died. And so Moses takes his family and his staff, and he heads back to Egypt. In verse 21, God prepares Moses for what's to come. So Moses, God says he's going to stand before Pharaoh, and he's going to perform miracles on behalf of God. And interestingly, God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And rather than letting the, letting the people go, Pharaoh is going, to, he's going to basically double down in his oppression. Now, this idea that God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart, it's going to be repeated multiple times in the upcoming chapters. So rather than deal with it now, I'm going to, I'm going to stick a pin in it. I'm, Mike McKinley can perfectly and succinctly explain that in the upcoming weeks. So, uh, so look forward to that. But notice verses 22 to 23 here. God gives Moses some specific instructions. So he says this, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I will say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. This is the first time in the Bible that Israel is referred to as God's son. And this gives us, I think, a window into the, the heart of Exodus. The Exodus is really a story about sonship. It's about a father's love for his children. It's about a father's desire to be with his family. You see, the, the Exodus story isn't, isn't simply a story about emancipation, the, 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 the release of a slave. It is that, but it's more than that. It's a story about repatriation, so the return of a son to his home. And that home is God. Israel are not being liberated to wander the earth as orphans. They're being taken from one form of servitude to another. That's why God says there, let my son go that he may serve me. They're being taken from under the rule and authority of Pharaoh and placed under the rule and authority of God. From oppression to adoption. Because that is true freedom. 
Listen to how God would later reminisce about the Exodus. So in in Hosea 11, we read this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. What a lovely picture this is of God. Just notice the fatherly affection. He says, when, I, when Israel was a child, I loved him. He says, I, le- I, led, him with, I led them with cords of kindness, with, with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. In verse 3 there, we, there's a picture, a beautiful picture of God teaching his son how to walk. If you're a parent, you'll remember those days when, when you held your toddler's hands as they clumsily put one foot in front of the other. And you know that the only thing preventing them from face planting was your love and grip. In verse 4, God gives us another picture, a picture of him bending down and, and feeding his children. Again, notice the intimacy, the, the condescension, the, the devotion. This is who God is to his people. Even though God says the more his people were called, the more they went away. You know, if you're a parent, you might know how that feels too. Despite God's love, his children rebelled. Yet God's fatherly love continued. So much so that eventually he sent his one and only son, the true and better firstborn son, the Lord Jesus. He sent them He sent the Lord Jesus to pay the price for their rebellion, to die on the cross for their sin, to to suffer the wrath and punishment that their wickedness deserved. That's the good news of the whole Bible. And now anyone who trusts in Christ is adopted into God's family. They become sons and daughters of a heavenly father. They receive firstborn privileges. They get an eternal inheritance that never perishes or fades. They receive the tender care, the boundless provision, the infinite love of God. So friend, if you've never trusted in Christ, then you're missing out. You know, I think sometimes we, we, must, we misunderstand what it means to follow Jesus. We think of it in mostly negative terms. You know, Jesus died to redeem me from my sin, to, to break the bonds of sin in my life. And this is true, but it can leave us wondering, well, what now? What will I do without my sin? What will I do without my lusts? What, what can I po- how can I possibly give up control of my life? How can I turn from all these things that I've been living for? I mean, what will I live for now? In other words, we think that Jesus is calling us to give up sin without giving us anything better in return. But friend, Jesus doesn't offer you to liberate you from sin so that you can wander the earth as an orphan. He offers you something better than the slave master of sin. He offers you adoption into God's family. You give up your sin, but you get God. 
Israel weren't just going to leave Egypt. They were going to get God. And the same is true for you. When you leave the Egypt of sin, you get a heavenly father. You get infinite love and security and provision. You get boundless compassion and mercy and care. You get limitless riches and honor and glory. You get to be the child of the infinite king. So trust in Jesus today and become one of God's adopted children. You know, this is why Egypt's oppression was so terrible. So every human being is made in the image of God. And therefore, any sort of oppression is, is terrible in God's eyes. But God had, God had set his particular love on Israel. And so God is going to warn Pharaoh, look, if you don't let my firstborn son go, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. That's how high the stakes are here. That's how personal the exodus is to God. Because these aren't just any people. These are God's covenant people. Now, in verses 24 to 26, we come across a really bizarre incident. You know, it's one of those passages that you never want read when you invite someone to church. You know, so if you've done that today, I'm sorry. Uh, I was reading the passage. I was like, okay, what am I preaching this week? I opened up Exodus 4, and I'm like, oh, great, great, great. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm going to have to figure out what that means and tell people about it. So, you know, it's, it's it, honestly, it, it's full of ambiguities. It's, it's, it's in, difficult to interpret, uh, but it's here for a reason, so we're going to have to deal with it. So, but rather than get into the weeds, let's just go with what is most clear in verses 24 to 26. So, Moses, he's, he's heading to Egypt. But then at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him. And we read that the Lord sought to put him to death. Hold on. God has just spent a good chunk of time convincing Moses to be his guy. To be the redeemer and deliverer of his, deliverer of his people. But now, all of a sudden, God's seeking to kill him. Now, we don't know what this looked like, so maybe Moses fell really ill. Maybe he started having a seizure or something. Either way, Moses' wife, Zipporah, sees what's happening, and she takes action. And somehow she knows what to do. She takes a flint knife, and she circumcises their son. Uh, she then touches Moses' feet with the foreskin, says something confusing, and then in verse 26, God leaves Moses alone. This is, this is a scene you're not going to find in your children's storybook Bible, thankfully. But, I mean, what is going on here? Why is God willing to put his chosen deliverer to death? Well, although there are lots of questions here, I think what seems clear is that Moses has neglected to circumcise his son. And this failure has provoked the displeasure of God. And so why was this such a big deal? Well, if you remember, when we, when we studied the book of, of Genesis last year, God made a covenant with Abraham. He promised to bring blessing to the world through Abraham. And so if you were part of this covenant, you would share in God's blessing. However, those outside the covenant would experience God's curse. It's this covenant that God remembered back in Exodus chapter 2. He's rescuing his people because he's faithful to that covenant. But who is part of this covenant? 
Well, God gave the sign of circumcision to indicate who was part of this covenant community. Circumcision was the distinguishing mark of God's people. It served as, as an out, outward proof of their sonship. And so Moses' failure to circumcise his son was a serious problem. It made him a covenant breaker. And how could God's deliverer be a covenant breaker? But notice how Moses' life is spared. Blood is shed. And that blood is applied to Moses. It says in verse 25 there that Zipporah touched his feet with it. That word touched there is the Hebrew word nagar. And it's, it's not used too often, but it's used, the next time it's used is in Exodus chapter 12, verse 22, when the Israelites are told to touch the door frames with the blood from the Passover lamb. In other words, there seems to be a foreshadowing of the Passover here. Now, maybe you're new to the Bible and you're like, oh, stop, stop, stop. I'm, I'm even more confused now. What on earth is the Passover? Well, we'll get to that in a few weeks, so don't worry about that for now. But what's important to see is that a pattern is being established here. A pattern that runs right through the rest of the Bible. And here's the pattern. A divine death threat is avoided through the application of blood. A divine death threat is avoided through the application of blood. Now, we'll come back to that idea in a moment, but just notice how our passage finishes. So in verse 27, God sends, sends Aaron to meet Moses, just as he said he was going to do. Moses tells Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he'd sent him to speak and all the signs that he'd commanded him to do. Just notice the word all there that's repeated. Moses has, has not only been spared, but he's, he's been changed. He's, he's become obedient. And the passage ends with Aaron speaking all the words of the Lord to the people and performing the signs in their sight. And then notice how, what happens in verse 31. We see there that the people believed and they bowed their heads and worshiped. By the end of the passage, God has overcome Moses' reluctance and disobedience to secure his people's worship. He's equipped Moses for the task at hand. Now, what are we to take from this? You know, after all, we're not living in Egypt under the rule and oppression of Pharaoh. But the truth is, you and I need a redeemer. We too need a deliverer. We need someone who is not reluctant, someone who is not disobedient. We need somebody like that that can save us from oppression, from slavery, not to any earthly power, but from sin and death. And if you haven't got the message yet, I'm going to repeat it one more time. That person is Jesus Christ. He is the willing and obedient redeemer. He's the sinless covenant-keeping deliverer. Remember what we saw in verses 24 to 26. A divine death threat is avoided through the application of blood. That is the central message of the entire Bible. Of all of us have received a divine death threat because we're sinners, every one of us. And the penalty for our sin is death. But blood has been shed on our behalf. 
the sinless, spotless blood of Jesus Christ, our true Passover lamb. He died the death that we deserve to die. And by faith in him, we avoid death through the application of his atoning blood. So Christian, what does this mean for you as you begin this week? Well, it means that you have a redeemer. Someone who is way better than Moses. Someone who has delivered you from slavery to sin. The penalty for sin has been paid. You know, God is not after you. He's not seeking your harm. Blood has already been shed on your behalf. Therefore, you don't have to live under the fear of God's judgment. You don't have to wallow in the misery of God's displeasure. In Christ, your God's child, you have his affection and approval, even if you don't feel it. Even if you doubt that he could really love you like that. In Christ, you've been redeemed from your sin. Better than that, you've been adopted into God's family. The only thing left to do is to live in that reality. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our willing and obedient redeemer and deliverer. We thank you that you have saved us from sin. You've liberated us from the penalty and the power of sin. But you haven't just done that so that we might live out the rest of our days as orphans. No, you have brought us into your family so that now we have firstborn son privileges. We get all of the honor and glory and inheritance that belongs to one of your children. Well, really, that belongs to Christ, but we get to share in him. Would you help us to live out the reality of that truth in our lives? And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.